Hi, you're listening to the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. This podcast takes the lived experiences and knowledge of some of the leading figures and thinkers from the world of club management and beyond, all so that they can become your teacher and elevate your performance. Whether you're looking to start a career in club management, are a seasoned club manager at a world-leading club, or work elsewhere within this wonderful industry, there will be powerful messages and key takeaways that can help you in your career or personal life. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Club Management Podcast with me, your host, Ed Chapman. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Gavin Robinson. Gavin's spent almost 15 years running some of the best golf clubs in Mexico after completing his PGA training from five-star luxury private members clubs to a startup public course with the ambition of growing the game from the grassroots. On his return to the UK, he got involved in the golf club management scene here and completed his club management diploma with the Club Management Association of Europe. He has most recently been the Professional Development Manager for the Golf Club Managers Association. Well, Gavin, thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Modern Club Management Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ed. To get us started, it'd be great to hear a little bit about a brief overview of your career history, kind of to date, how you got into the golf industry and where it's taken you. Thanks, Ed. I'll, I'll be as brief as I can. You know how people sort of love to talk about themselves. So um, it's uh, this one could go on. But but I think basically I, I sort of fell in love with the game at, a, at an early age. I started playing golf when I was nine. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. I watched it on TV, read magazines, and, you know, learned as much as I could from that and um, became a pretty good player. Um, so Basically, when I was 18, I had a decision to make uh, coming from Northern Ireland, whether I wanted to stay in the country during the Troubles or whether I wanted to perhaps go and study uh, overseas or in that case, in this case, it was England. So I took that decision to, to go to university um, I had, a, had a great time at university, came out with a degree, but really decided I wanted to go back to the golf. That was sort of my first love and um, you know wanted to, to be a, a PGA pro. So I went through that process. Uh, I qualified as a PGA pro back in 2002. Um, and after working one year as, uh, as a qualified sort of senior head professional, um, I got an opportunity to, to go in and work in Mexico uh, as, a, as a director of instruction at a you know, five-star resort-style uh, private members club. So uh, I realized the job that I was in wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and I thought this was an excellent opportunity to, you know, to go out and see a bit of the world. Um, only planned to go for six months, um, and uh, went went to Mexico and uh, had my mind blown by some of the facilities out there, the weather, the climate, the people. Um, had an absolute fantastic experience out there, and stayed out there for fifteen years. Um, where I, I got married and uh, have had a couple of uh, lovely Mexican daughters uh, to bring back with me to the UK whenever that adventure was over. Uh, I worked on three different projects out there. Um, as I say, the first one was that sort of five-star country club. Um, the second one was a startup 
private members club with a, a Jack Nicholas signature course. So an absolute Rolls Royce of a golf course, uh, but with no members basically. Mm. Um, and my final project uh, was a public golf course. Uh, and now that was actually my, um, that was my desired, that was my dream job, if you like, working on a public golf course. Um, I, I sort of realized out there that uh, in order to grow the game, um, what they needed was infrastructure. Um, there was lots of private members clubs, exclusive, um, expensive to get into for, for the normal Mexican. Uh, but without access to public golf, uh, the game wouldn't grow uh, in Mexico. So that was that was very much a dream job. Uh, and I worked with uh, with the people there for for five years on that. Um, so, but that that project drew to a close with for me uh, back in 2018, and came back to the UK. And um, through you know over the last sort of four four and a half years back in the UK, I've been plying my trade in the in the golf club management circle. So that's that's about as brief as I can make it, Ed. No, that's no need to be brief. There's always interesting stories in everyone's life I think how did growing up kind of a, in the kind of troubles era I think that kind of shaped how you maybe approach things like conflict or complaints in golf clubs or just your general outlook on life do you think that had much of an effect on you when you're growing up there yeah definitely it's it's it's, it's absolutely shaped me um you know going you know Growing up there in those difficult times, I mean, the only news that we got was bad news uh, whenever we turned the TV on. Um, but having said that, it's you know, growing up um, sort of in Northern Ireland was was absolutely idyllic. And um, you know, you those were the days where you could actually you know leave your front door open. Nobody would nobody would you know break into your house or go into your house. You know, you've got the freedom to you know to run around the fields, play football. You know wherever go down to rip, whatever it may be it was um it was you know it was a great place to grow up in, grow up in and obviously I had access to a golf course uh, not too far away either so um so certainly on on that side of, the, of things I've got no complaints um but yeah I mean there's you know there were there were examples where uh, you know the bombs did affect me I was sort of sort of directly involved um in them going off not too far away from me and stuff like that so uh, it, I think it, it certainly um, it opens your your eyes to the, the world and what's you know what's going on obviously at a, at a very young age. Um, uh, it, I guess it also gives you a, a certain amount of sort of steeliness or grit that you know you don't get frightened by minor things. You know we had um, you know on, on a fairly regular basis we would have the the army helicopters landing in a field behind our house. You know, they'd come out, you know, we'd invite them in and they'd, they'd eat us out of house and home. Um, you know, bread, you know, the fridge is absolutely raided. Um, but, you know, you get to see them up and close, up close and personal, if you like, with their their rifles and uh, and all the gear that they take with them. So um, it's, it, as I say, it's, um, it was, it was a difficult time for a lot of people and a lot of families were, were, were hurt by it. Um, and, you know, that hurt still goes on today. Um, but you know, I think Northern Ireland as a country has moved on a lot from that, and uh, I'm, I'm very, very proud to be from there. Um, we got a great education system in Northern Ireland. Um, it's, it's pretty much grammar school education, or at least it was then. So um, yeah, so a lot to be thankful for. Um, but yeah, it certainly um, it certainly prepares you for pretty much everything uh, that uh, that life would, would have to throw at you. <laughs> 
Yeah, those formative years, developing that grit, resilience, and it's adaptability as well, having to be kind of a bit of a chameleon to navigate uh, all the different groups uh, and different fractions that you'll, you'll meet with, certainly here, as you say, develops a lot of life skills of early on. So Mexico, was it somewhere, you, I'm guessing it's somewhere you'd never even thought of before the opportunity came along? And so how did the opportunity come along and kind of what what was your first six months like? Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, not, wouldn't have been sort of the first first place on my mind. Um, it, it came up through, through a, you know, a stroke of very, very good fortune. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was was going through the PGA training at the Belfry. Uh, and he came across this guy uh, who was you know, on, on the same residential week, but who was working out in Mexico. So they, they got to know each other, got, got chatting about uh, what was going on out there. Uh, and basically this guy, um, he had to come back to the, the, the PGA um, to, I mean, the, the rule with the PGA is that you had to be an assistant uh, to a PGA professional. Now, he couldn't do that overseas. He had to do that back in the UK. So he was traveling back and forward to, to Mexico a lot to sort of keep that facade going that, that he was he was an assistant to a pro in the UK. So they, they cooked up this plan between them that uh, with me being recently qualified as a PGA pro, then uh, if I went out there, and then we could set up a PGA training establishment out there. And then this guy wouldn't have to travel back to the UK six or eight times a year. Um, and that's pretty much how it came about. And that's that's what happened. Um, you know, the, the, the two of us, myself and my friend, both of us went out there at the same time. Um, as I said, we, we got return tickets. This was uh, February in 2003 we went out there. And we had return tickets for May. Um, so... Um, but yeah, you know, my first week, um, was, you know, it couldn't actually have made much of a bigger impact on me. Uh, we had a champions tour event and being an English speaker, uh, they put me on the tee as a starter. <laughs> so, so I'm, you know, thrown into this sort of situation where from a driving range in Dundalk in Ireland, I was, um, you know, shaking hands with, uh, you know, Fuzzy Zeller. You know Tom Kite, Healer, when all, all the guys on the Champions Tour, and you know having a chat with them on that, and, and you know Des Smith was there as well. He was like he was he was really nice to me, and uh, so you know what's an Irishman doing out here, sort of thing. Um, and you know it was it was a fantastic experience. There wasn't a cloud in the sky for the whole week, so I'm going like you know this is March, you know, end of February, beginning of March. It's like you know does this country not have clouds? It's like <laughs> it was it was amazing. Um, made a massive impact. Obviously the, the place where I was working at was um, it, at that time, back in 2003, it was the largest clubhouse in the world. Uh, it cost, you know, maybe $12 million to construct. And, you know, had like three swimming pools, tennis courts, you know, the, the, you know, a locker room, which looks like an amphitheater. It was just an absolutely incredible sort of, it made a big impact, Ed. Um, you know, something that I'll, I'll, I'll sort of certainly take with me for the rest of my life. It was, uh, it was, it was massive. Um, so yeah, so I thought, uh, well, I've landed on my feet here. Um, let's make the most of it. So that was, was pretty much my attitude. I think that kind of, in some ways, typifies working overseas, where you just have these experiences, which they're not things you could dream about doing or having because you just 
you wouldn't like that turning up and then starting a champions tour event and meeting all those people that's almost not a dream thing to do because you just wouldn't actually think that's something you would ever do or be able to have that opportunity yeah. to and then talk me through a bit about what you learned at that club kind of well actually just all three clubs um kind of your main takeaways that you found working in those environments at those different clubs and kind of the skills you felt you developed being there yeah i, I guess um you know you get a real insight into to the business i mean this this the first club i worked at was was recently opened it only opened in september 2002 so it had been open for six months and so there were still some some teething problems with the the golf course at that stage and uh, you know so there were very regular visits with the owners you know doing a tour of the golf course to to sort of continually make the the improvements and adjustments um so i've got a real insight into you know how a how a golf course is constructed um designed first of all obviously with uh, without any maintenance in mind <laughs> because uh the designer of that course Boscarial was uh, a guy called von Hagi, and he's very he's very oh, famous yeah. for doing like moguls yeah so um yeah yeah so so he was uh, he did quite a few courses in mexico um but they were very very awkward to maintain you know so you know they look good but you know that's you know, when you're looking for a sustainable future, that's not really the way to go. Um, so anyway, so that that understanding the sort of the design, uh, the construction, and then the maintenance of the golf course was uh, was a huge uh, learning experience for me. You know, really understanding a golf course from 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 underneath the ground up, um, and, and you know the whole irrigation system that goes on through that, uh, and then you get into the sort of the sources of water, the quality of the water you're putting on the golf course. It, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was a massive deal. Um, then I guess on the on the sort of the, the front of house side of things, you know, dealing with the, with the members and, and members who are um, they you know they're they're sort of quite demanding would be the best way of putting it. Um, they expect the best. Uh, they've they've been used to the best throughout their lives. Um, you know, they're they're very much the people who run the country. Um, that's that's the sort of level, sort of the highest level of business people um politicians etc who are who are members at your club so you, you learn very quickly as well that you know they're although they're very very welcoming to to a foreigner and um, they, they still have those expectations um so you you really do have to adapt and uh, to to their culture um and the way that they like things to be done uh but i always felt i could do that but hopefully without co compromising my own principles and, and what i grew up with in northern ireland so, um, so that was that was that was that sort of adaptation side of things as well to them. I think another massive thing was the the service levels out there, um, you know, the the service levels that you get used to and uh, providing, but also receiving whenever you go to go out for you know to bars and restaurants. Um, it was absolutely incredible. You know, the, the you you really literally didn't have to lift a finger for anything, and there was always somebody there to do whatever it was that you wanted doing. Certainly, something we're not used to in the UK, um, and it's uh, it's very comfortable, and it's something that that you you get used to quite easily. Um, now, I think you know we could probably go into this in a little bit more detail later on, um, but um, you know that's understanding where that service comes from and that level of service come from is, is a huge learning experience as well. 
Um, and I think, you know, just, just that appreciation of, a, of another culture. I mean, Mexico is obviously, it's a, it's a very ill-divided country when it comes to the distribution of wealth. And um, obviously we were, we were very lucky going in at the, you know, at the, the, the elite level. Um, but you do obviously get to see living 15 years out there, you get to see all, all, all aspects of society. Um, and, um, you know, you, you learn to appreciate what you've got back home. I think, uh, it certainly gives you that perspective on, on life as well. So, so yeah, so lots of, lots of important learning experiences from, from out there. Yes, with learning the cultural adaptation in a country is just a, a larger scale event than learning the cultural nuances of a golf club. Each golf club's going to have its own culture and differences, but having that experience and skill set of already adapting in a whole other country, I think that must give you a lot of skills and ability to then yeah, learn very quickly how things are done around here uh, as one way of putting it for culture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it, it is adaptation. You know, it's, it's something you mentioned earlier, earlier, it's being that sort of chameleon, uh, being able to, to adapt your, your style and, uh, your, your, your communication style with, with people. Um, and as you say, you know, doing it in a different country, you've done it at a, at a, at a, a much higher level than's probably needed for, for something um, local or, or national within within the UK, but having said that, as you say, all, all, all clubs have their own culture and their own sort of DNA, um, and it, it takes time to to learn that. You, you know, you, you're not going to go into a golf club and, and understand that straight away. Um, I think um, you know going into a, a new role at a golf club. Um, I think it's you know the first six months. Um, you, you know, there's, they often give you two options, really, don't they? They say, are you going to make a massive impact straight away or are you going to sit back and observe? I think if it was uh, myself through, through the wisdom of that, going through that experience, I think sitting back and observing and trying to learn the culture that you're coming into uh, will pay dividends in the future if, if you really want to be there for, for long term. So I think that, that would be sort of my advice to anybody going into a new role. Um, you know, take that, take that time. Mm. You, you only get it once. You're only the sort of the new boy in the block once. Um, so, so use that time wisely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's always that danger of when you, you see something that doesn't make sense to you, whether it's a procedure or a, a standard of how something's done, it's very easy to go, well, that shouldn't be done like that. And you remove it or change it. And then a month later, you go, oh, that's, that's why, why they did it like that. We best put that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we best put that back, which is instantly erodes the any trust or confidence you've managed to build up with your team and yourself because you've you've potentially ignored them or you've just, yeah, jumped in with that. It's, yeah, that balance of you've been hired to have an opinion to make decisions, but you don't understand quite why everything's done yeah. how it why it is yet to have that time observing it to try and understand why this strange thing actually is the correct potential we could use the sort of straying off topic the, the example of liz truss and quasi quartang at the minute of you know somebody who mm -hmm. really wanted to make a, a, an impact at the moment but perhaps without understanding and um you know having a little bit more and the and, and obviously backtracking erodes confidence in, in your abilities so absolutely right yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. So how have you found it coming back to the UK? It's I know it can be a challenge, something which many friends and former colleagues of mine have have had a challenge when they've moved back to the UK, and I did as well this year when um, I did start looking for potential roles over here. What do you feel the kind of the biggest misconceptions that people have about overseas golf clubs and how they differ to to clubs in the UK? Uh, I'll let you go over. Obviously, I have my own, own opinions and thoughts on this, but I'll let you dive in first. Yeah, it's um, it was it was a bit of a shock to the system, to be honest, Ed. Uh, it's certainly something I wasn't expecting. Um, uh, maybe I was naive uh, when I came back to the UK. I thought my the experience that I had working at, at the level that I had worked at would count for something. You know, would would actually be v- valuable. Um, I'll give you an example. My, my the first job that I applied for was Royal Birkdale, um, because I felt that was the level that I was working at. Um, you know, that's your level of golf course, that level of um, you know brand, if you like, um, you know, the profile of, of a club that that was working at. Now that that didn't go so well. It didn't get an interview, surprisingly. Um, but I was very lucky to have a um, you know quite an in-depth conversation with Richard Wood from uh, Colt McKenzie McNair. Uh, he very kindly um, you know gave me some some of his time and sort of helped me to understand a little bit about what the UK and um, job market was like in the golf industry, um, and what some of the steps that I could go through that would improve my chances of of, of landing a role. Maybe not that role in particular. So, um, but yeah, so that was that was a, a bit of an eye opener. Um, you know, coming back that um, that perhaps the experience that I had overseas uh, wasn't wasn't really what golf clubs were looking for here in in the UK, or certainly not what traditionally they'd been looking for. Um, and I certainly went through a period of applying for a number of different jobs. I had the advantage of being able to work anywhere. We hadn't settled. We hadn't put any roots down. So I could literally work anywhere in the UK. Um, um, so so I was able to apply for an awful lot of um, what I would consider sort of, you know, attractive roles. Um, some of them maybe not so attractive. Um, and finding it very, very difficult even to get an interview. Uh, and just, um, it was... You know, obviously a tough time for myself, but you know, for my wife and kids, it was uh, it was it was very difficult as well. And um, they'd, they'd obviously come over with me, you know, with this idea uh, that that I'd sold them that um, you know they were going to be you know living a, a better life in in uh, you know in a, in a first world country. So, um, there's a certain amount of pressure attached to that as well as you can possibly imagine. <laughs> um, so. Um, so eventually, I got I got my break uh, thanks to you know a couple of individuals really who were you know very very um, instrumental in me getting that break. Uh, and I'll, I'll quite happily name them for you: uh, Toby Johansson uh, from CMAE uh, was was very helpful. Uh, I went through the the the, the CM uh, CMAE management development program uh, stage one and two. Um, and then you know, through that, I got some work experience in the UK, um, uh, and Jerry Kilby also, um, who a lot of a lot of people will know in the in the UK golf industry, uh, was was a huge help to me as well, and and you know, and Eddie Bullock as well. So I, I had some really really good people helping me along the way, and uh, really appreciated that that help, and still do. 
Um, so I guess, you know, th- those difficulties, but I, I trying to understand, I guess, why um, it was difficult for me to get an interview, I guess, was sort of the secret to, to actually getting, making progress. Um, I think there's, there's a number of, of issues that, you know, the golf club committees will look at uh, in an applicant. And when they see overseas experience, um, it's almost like a red flag to them. Um, because there are certain issues that they automatically assume that I know somebody with um, extensive overseas experience won't have. Um, one of those would be compliance. I mean, how, how good is this individual uh, when it comes down to you know, legislation, regulation around human resources, uh, etc.? Um, the fact Another issue would be the fact that you tend to work with larger numbers of staff uh, when you're overseas. So you'd have um, you know, high levels of, of human resource, uh, which you wouldn't have in the UK. Um, and I, I guess the other thing would be you know sort of the scale that you work on when you're overseas. I mean, I was in charge of a of, you know a fleet of golf carts of a hundred you know one hundred and twenty, uh, and during those tournaments, um, you know the the Champions Tour or the LPGA Tour that went up to two hundred and twenty. So you're looking after you know you know a different scale you know. You know, those those committees they're looking out on their forecourt and they've got six buggies to look after so um you know I, I guess there's there's that fear maybe that this person's going not going to not going to be able to adapt to something so small um and or they're going to come in with big ideas thinking that you know that you know, they sh- maybe they should have things so i i guess there's there's an awful lot of uncertainty around employing somebody with with that sort of experience um and i guess that's you know, when it, when you've got so many applications, really, that's it's you know, you're there, you're looking for reasons to reduce the numbers, you know, to, to get down to your sort of final three. So if you've got all these doubts about a certain individual, then you know that's that's an easy one to get rid of. And I certainly find that's that's that was my experience that with that lack of UK experience and, and those doubts hanging around, it was quite easy to take my CV and, and sort of push it to one side. That's how I felt. Uh, yeah, I think they're very astute observations. Yeah, um, yeah, similar. Um, just at yeah, very similar to scale of organisations and not being able to. It's interesting because I would see it that I can see how scaling up's hard. How going from running a fleet of six golf carts to one hundred and twenty, I can see how that would be a big red flag because it's it is different. In some ways, I do find it hard to understand how it's seen that you can't scale down to managing. I mean, you can manage six golf carts. As a, I mean, six golf carts is not a fleet, really. Um, you could do that in your sleep. But I see that as a positive, that then that frees up so much capacity for the rest of the job. All these other things that are scaled down gives you so much mental resources and time to tackle the more important things and interesting one, like with the compliance stuff. And that's something I've thought about as well, of not having that, that information. I guess the way I see that is just, you're just reading a manual and learning it. I know there's a little bit more to it than that, but when it comes to employment law and compliance, it's not like it doesn't change regularly anyway. So you're just having to read a manual and understand what's the key parts, which I think when you're dealing with big operations, you're used to having to deal with that sort of stuff anyway. 
uh, and knowing understanding what's the, the important parts but yeah there's certainly been aspects of of feedback i've been given you're right it comes down to partly it's the safety aspect for a lot of committees of mr smith down the road he's done a decent job at a club they know so they know they'll get a decent job um at their club so a friend of mine's just moved back from china after about seven years and i think culturally we would see ourselves as different to china but he actually sees us as being extremely similar because in china they're so scared of change they just like doing things the same way it's always been done and to him he sees that as being what the uk is like people are scared of change scared of bringing someone in who might have a different idea to the norm um so i thought that was quite an interesting observation yeah of how similar he sees that that yeah yeah being afraid of of change yeah definitely i mean it's, it's certainly something that um sort of i've and then I guess through my role at the GCMA as, as professional development manager and, and having access to so the latest um, ideas and thinking around golf club management, um, certainly you know de- delved into the subject of, of golf club governance. Um, and again, sort of with that sort of experience that I had of, of, of having difficulty finding work, sort of that was that was something that I was interested in, in understanding better. Um, and having said, you know, that, you know, a huge part of working overseas is to respect the culture. Um, I wouldn't like to disrespect the culture in the UK too much either. Um, but I do, I do feel that, you know, within golf clubs, uh, I guess club, club management in general, it's, it's probably not just golf clubs. Um, cause we do see difficulties with, with other sports as well, cricket, um, et cetera. Um, you know, clubs tend to be sort of very, very conservative uh, in their decision-making. Um, you know, you could use the examples of, of Hoodie Gate. Um, you know, is is that really uh, a major issue? Um, you know, mobile phones. You know, that's you know, the restriction of the use of mobile phones in clubhouses. Um, even even the attitude to kids sometimes in, in golf clubs isn't isn't what it should be. Um, you know, and those are just some of the some of the issues that are you know sort of going around you know the clubs here in the UK. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a big debate um, that, or well, I call it big debate. Maybe it's not, but I would think that there should be a discussion around what values and traditions uh, and understanding the differences of both. There are some traditions that you know we should be proud to keep and, and hang on to, but then there are others that you know that need to change. Uh, traditions aren't set in stone, and um, you know that's. If it's a good tradition, keep it going. But if it's not a good tradition, then maybe just let it go and uh, and move with the times. But what's really important are, are the values that your club has, uh, and you know what what your DNA is and what you know, what you want to hold true to going forward. So if the values don't change, which which you know generally they shouldn't, then the traditions can be or you know around around those values. And I think that's a discussion that that we haven't really had, and sometimes they get confused. Um, you know, values and traditions get get sort of interchanged, um, but they they are different. So, um, so I would say, you know, the certainly around um, the the theme of governance in, in golf clubs uh, and clubs in general. There's there's that sort of ultra conservatism and that sort of fear of change. Um, I think also for committees, just to, yeah, go on, yeah, just to interject there, Gavin. 
on that theme, a friend of mine a few years back was looking to come back to the UK and he interviewed at one club and they talked about how they were really becoming a family friendly club and they wanted to get the next generation in and they're looking at doing that. And they had been for a few years and he asked, oh, okay, so what investments have you made into making the club more family friendly club? I said, oh no, we haven't made any investments into that. Like it was a really odd question. Yeah. So, okay. And, and children are allowed in the club at any time. Oh no, no, they're, they're restricted when they're allowed in. But they didn't see any incongruence with the fact that they're marching themselves as a family friendly, welcoming golf club. And they have hadn't invested in anything to make it appealing to kids and still ban kids at certain times of the day in the clubhouse. Um, I think just an example of what can be how the values and traditions don't always uh, necessarily align. But yeah. please carry on. <laughs> no, no, you're right, hundred um, percent. You know, it's it's very much a you know a, a sort of that sort of again we'll open the door you know, to, you know, to, to the family, but you know, we won't do anything really to, to provide for you, to provide, you know, the activities and, and the things that you want to do. Um, which again was something that, you know, the, the memberships overseas are, they're all certainly in, in Mexico, they're all family memberships. So there were, there were no individual memberships. So it's, um, so you're, you're paying for your family anyway. Um, but normally they do provide activities for, you know, for the, for the different markets that you have within your golf club. So, um, you know, tennis courts, swimming pool, um, games rooms for the kids, you know, things like that, that would encourage, you know, the, you know, the, the whole family to go, but their revenue streams Ed, this is, this is the, the, the whole thing about, mm. um, you know, the system, the country club system that was set up in the States. Now I'm, I'm not. I'm not a massive fan of the United States, and um, but there you can certainly see that there's an eye for business. You know, I don't think anybody can deny that. And the country club setup is is basically it's all about different revenue streams. And if you get the whole family there for the weekend, while they're there, they're going to be spending money on different things, whether it's their food um, or, or or getting a haircut, whatever they you know, whatever you activity you can going for spa treatment. You know, you can put on these services within the golf club and they will stay there and spend their money there. Um, and that's, you know, that's revenue for the club. So there's certainly that business aspect to it. And I know most golf clubs are not for profit, but at the same time, um, you know, the surplus that you generate can be reinvested into the club to having better facilities and nicer facilities for your members. Mm. So um, nobody's against growth. So I think that's, yeah, something, mm. something. Two things, yeah, two things to add to that. Um, so first one, coming back to the F&B and revenue. A few months ago, nice summers, Friday evening, I played nine holes with a couple of friends at a local club. Uh, and my wife walked around uh, walking the dog, as it's a course that allows that. And we sat and had dinner on the lovely terrace they've got, which overlooks beautiful countryside and the golf course. Uh, and it was just perfect weather amazing seven something p.m maybe on a friday evening we were the only people there eating and i just couldn't believe it you've got probably one of the nicest places to sit out in terms of the view and it's nice food and it's your club and it's a friday evening and there was no one else there i just blew me away like that 
that's not to me that's such a huge potential yeah revenue source yeah and then on that and the re reinvesting it when i did my uh, research project for my masters last year one of the things that came out of the survey now this is pretty of i think obvious result to happen but one of the questions was how important is making a profit to the club and a, lot, a number of clubs but not at all which you, you know your higher end private members clubs but there was a strong correlation between clubs who said they had no importance on making a profit they had the lowest amount that they put back into the golf club they're the lowest level of capital reinvestment whereas the clubs that had a high importance had a high reinvestment and then that metric was also correlated to membership satisfaction the ones who had the least amount of capital reinvestment unsurprisingly had the lowest levels of membership satisfaction yeah so they're all linked there together as you say if even if they're not for profit and they're private members club well if you stand still you're going backwards so if you're not investing you're not putting money into it and that all comes down to two revenue streams and and how you can generate those which I think it's a common and big part of a lot of clubs overseas and that like the country club star model it's about bringing in revenue in different ways still and that doesn't mean it can't be a great service for the members i think that's another misconception it's seen that if you're making money it must be bad for the members well not necessarily if you're making money and you're investing and you're making the club better and better and better that's not bad for the members yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's, it's perhaps a, a little bit of complacency mm. in some clubs, isn't it? So, but as you rightly said, you know, if if you're not mm. if you're not making progress, then you're actually going backwards. So, yeah. So, yeah. I, so I I again, I mean, it's, another it's, another challenge. I, mean, I was going to yeah. say another challenge. I think is it's difficult to prove that something isn't true. So, if your feedback you're getting is can't scale down to six golf carts or you won't know the compliance or we think you'll just move back overseas again it's hard to prove that that's not true because <laughs> it it's really hard I, yeah. I, i've been thinking about this a lot and i'm like well how can you prove convince. that convince that statement's not true i mean in some ways it's maybe easier for yourself with kids because you don't want to it's quite an easy one to say well I don't want to keep uprooting them and moving them around the world is kind of part of potentially that but so yes I, I've I haven't found the way necessarily of of how you yeah you get around proving something isn't true because there's a lack of evidence by its nature <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that that is a very very tough one. It's a very good observation, Ed. It's uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way. It's um, yeah. You know, how do you convince somebody that what you're actually saying is you know it's it's the way that you actually feel? I, I guess it comes down to you know your your authenticity and and trust. And mm. I, again, uh, you know, it, we go back to those, those that decision making process within golf clubs. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know when. Um, when you said you know they're they're so inclined to go for a safe pair of hands, uh, someone down the road who's who's managed the club um, adequately, 
they'd be quite happy to accept somebody who can manage a club adequately rather than the possibility of somebody managing it exceptionally, but he doesn't have that evidence, local evidence, if you like, um, which is a little, which is a little sad, um, you know, because, you know, it's adequate is, is okay, but, you know, exceptional is, is, is progress. So, um, you know, I, I yeah. think that's, that's, that's a little bit sad. I mean, I guess, you, you do have to understand, you know, that the boards and committees, they, you know, they're there for a limited period of time normally. You know, the individuals are there for three or four years. Um, and they don't want to be the ones that make the, the bad decision. They don't want to employ the, the manager who made a mess of things. And so they will be essentially conservative normally in their, their decision making. Mm. Um, now I was talking to a manager recently, and he's he said that his he just had six new board members in the last week, um, in the last week. So they've completely you know wow routed the board and started with a new ones, you know, scrapped it and started again. Um, so there's there are lots and lots of difficulties with um you know four managers with with their boards and committees, um you know there's there's that fear of change. I think there's 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 a difficulty in finding volunteers as well, Ed. Um, you know, to try and get you know board members to to actually stick their hand up and say, "Yep, I'll I'll help the club out," um, because they you know there there's you know there's there's quite a bit of work involved in it normally, and most people are busy. So, uh, to, you know, to find those volunteers isn't easy, and what that generally leads to are sort of unsuitable board members. And so you get some board members who possibly shouldn't be there. Um, they're there for their own personal reasons or their own agenda, um, and then you know that that normally doesn't doesn't finish very well for for the manager. And you know the the turnover of managers is it's increasing um, you know, as time goes on, uh, and the and the you know the horror stories that for, that you hear from managers um, are unfortunately increasing as well. Um, so mm. I certainly think it's a, it's, it's a big issue that needs to be tackled. Um, I think there's, you know, I think there are solutions. Um, you know, I, I guess another issue on boards as well is lack of diversity. Um, you know, you tend to get the same sort of profile of person um, volunteering, you know, t you know, as, as, as the generations go on, it's not just a year to year thing. It's like, this just keeps happening in golf. Mm. But, so you know th those are issues that have perhaps you know from from the an outside perspective looking at golf it's uh, you know we're very slow to change you know i don't think anybody could really argue with that we are very slow to change uh we tend to be very myopic um you know and not not be able to see the wood for the trees um and you know it's you know we, we've got such a great environment as you rightly said you know, we, we're, we're so fortunate to be the custodians of these beautiful places um, uh, with, with so much potential. Um, but we're, we're, we're just not making the most of it, I don't think. Yeah, I agree overall. I think there are clubs out there, and we both know and believe this, we've just focused on the other end, but there are clubs out there who do a great job, who have fantastic boards, who are very forward-thinking and progressive and... They use great governance structures of, of how they have, whether it's nominations committees and, and a bit more continuity with maybe a chairman who's there for longer. But it's certainly not, I think, the common uh, scenario with a lot of clubs. And 
there's an old saying in America, which was you never get fired for buying IBM, which was back in the day, if you bought IBM computer systems for your company, even if they didn't work, you weren't going to lose your job because it's IBM. Yeah. But if you went with Apple or whoever the newcomers were, they didn't work, you'd lose your job. Yeah. I think there's certainly that, that mindset with, as you, as you said earlier, that taking the adequate manager from down the road, who's going to bring a very similar thing to, to what you had is the safe bet for, for the committee mm -hmm. to take on that route. And it's then finding the ones that have that little bit more kind of maybe ambition and that they're willing to look at some other, other potential skill sets that yeah. people can bring and experiences that they can bring over to their clubs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly optimistic, um, you know, for the future. Mm. Uh, I think, I think there, there have been great strides made, specifically around the pandemic. Um, you know, as an industry, I think we recognise the, you know, the, the gift that we were given through that sort of tragic circumstances, and you know, with the participation levels, you know, going, going through the roof. Um, and it's something the golf had been crying out for, you know, after 20 years of, of sort of consistent decline in numbers and, um, you know, to, 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 to get back to where we were 20 years ago was, uh, was a fantastic boost to the, to the whole industry. And I think, you know, managers and, and committees were, you know, they were, they were wise to that and they were aware of that and they, you know, they, they upped their game and said, okay, we've got these new members, we've got full membership again. Let's you know. Let's keep them. Let's let's listen to them. Let's you know. Let's let's provide what it is that they they've actually come here for. Um. So I think there was a huge amount of progress made during that time. Um, but again, again, it's it's the sort of thing that we're. And um, I, I feel that the underlying sort of uh, conditions haven't really changed. I think it's it's possibly a, a temporary boost. Um, and you know. Unfortunately, I, I do believe that things may may go into decline again if we don't do something. I think there there are certainly um, solutions to you know so those issues of, of sort of ultra conservatism and, and and being a bit myopic. I think there are solutions. Um, I would prefer to see a national solution, um, where you know the governing body would actually um, promote um, a. Sort of, uh, you know that you know for for all of the clubs that, that are affiliated to you know to to introduce structures into their golf clubs that that maintain change that build change into you know what they do on a, on a year to year basis um i think there definitely needs to be a volunteer strategy uh, for for each club um you know how are you going to attract volunteers what you know you know what package do you put together to for those volunteers? Are they just coming in as as free labor, or are you actually going to give them something worthwhile? If you put them on a mental health first aid training course, for example, that might be something that they'd like to do, um, and certainly something mm -hmm. very very um, you know useful for the club to have. And um, so, if you put together those sorts of um, packages of of what. Uh, of what a volunteer would would get from the role of volunteering, apart from the fact that they're giving back to the club, which is normally enough, but um, I, I think you know less and less probably. Um, I think you actually might try you might attract other um, demographics as well in, into into volunteering. 
if, if they feel that they're going to get some sort of free training out of it as well. Uh, and I think that that strategy can be managed, um, you know, and I think it's, it's something that's going to sort of ensure most golf clubs will have, you know, a, hopefully a queue of volunteers with the correct skills that that you're looking for to, to have on the board or, or the committee and the subcommittees as well. Um, so I think it's it's certainly, you know, what I would see is um, as as a solution. Uh, and of course, I think it's if it if it has to be long term, or if it's going to be long term, it, it needs to be written into the the articles of association of the club that you know this is what this is what we're going to do. So it's not dependent upon any single person or any single committee or board that can change things and set things back. And um, there's those sort of structures within the club that are are set in stone long term. There's change. That's that's what happens at this club. So I think there are solutions. Um, so I, as I say, I think it's it's mm. something that you know we need to you know take the bull by the horns and, and address sort of what the underlying conditions are within golf clubs. Um, you know we've had a we've had a massive boost. Um, let's 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 take full advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the idea of training, I think, is so important. You know, if you go in the corporate world, you've got things like the Institute for Directors, where people go on training to be board members. I think there's a there's a space for that within the club world where there's maybe there's a one day training course on how to facilitate board meetings and participate in them, be a committee member that I think a lot of people would probably value going on if they're going to sit on committees potentially for a number of years as you build up to maybe being a captain, say, I think they're important things to offer uh, going forward. I like the idea of the national strategy. One thing that really impressed me with Australia was there's an Australian golf strategy plan, strategic plan for the next five years, where they brought together everyone, Golf Australia, PGA of Australia, Women's PGA, PGA Tour of Australasia, every governing body were involved in a five-year plan for the whole country of golf. And if you look at other sports... They're far less fragmented than yeah. golf tends to be. You, know, you don't have you know, so many, like let's take tennis. You yeah. don't have anywhere near the number of different governing bodies. Because um, in Australia, the person who took over as CEO of Golf Australia, he came from, I think it was Cricket Australia. And there's only Cricket Australia and everything yeah. sits underneath that. Whereas golf, much like it is here, has all these different organizations all pulling in different directions having some kind of unified approach and strategy as as you say participation in golf in the uk hasn't gone up by anything golf has done differently it's gone up really only because of the opportunity covid provided for people to want to go and do outdoor sports so as you said if we don't do anything different now, those people who originally left will just leave again at some point. And when you've got cost of living going up, golf, like we saw in 2008, is one of the first things to go by the wayside. And I remember then one of the members at a club I worked at in the UK, he wasn't affected really. But he said, well, if I've laid off 10 staff in my business, I can't be on the golf course three days a week. I 
have to be there, even yeah. though he could afford to be at the golf club. Yeah. It's not a great image. Yeah. So it needs to be something done to keep these keep people interested, get the families coming up. I think with you know, for whereas older generations it was I think more acceptable. Even come the weekend, the husband's not there. Now that's just not really the done thing. It's not yeah. really where you can get people going, yeah, I'll go and spend eight hours at the golf club Saturday, Sunday. Getting families there, getting everyone involved is maybe a more sustainable model for some clubs, not yeah. all, as there's that. Well, I mean, that, has that's, its unique I think it's a very good, sorry to interrupt. It's a very, very good point. I mean, right. the, the, the UK market is it's so big um, that there are spaces for you know clubs to have their own sort of specific you know ideas. If you are a club that you know it's it's men only, then fine. If that's who you are, that's that's what you that's what you want, and that's what you publicise. Then then fine. You know, there's a market for that. You know, go right ahead. Uh, and women only clubs as well. So and um, you know there's. Not everybody has to be the same and follow the same model, but I think there there definitely does need to be that that move to try and include um, sort of the whole family into your sort of average or your sort of middle tier golf club in, in the UK. I think you know do whatever you can. I mean, obviously some of them are quite old and their their facilities are not designed for that specifically. But you know if if there are opportunities to develop and uh, you know and, and and offer more activities for for the family, then you know I'd, I'd certainly encourage that. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a nice way to tie it up because that also ties into adaptability, resilience and understanding and cultures and, and yeah, adapting to them and understanding how you can influence them while keeping the, the true identity there, uh, which is something that sounds a bit you certainly learned in Mexico yeah. and it's something that I've learned in my overseas roles as well. Yeah. So, Gavin, thank you for joining me. And yeah, and I just I sort of one final thing yeah. that we, we forgot yeah. to mention that was um, it was that experience that I had uh, when I went through the the mentor program, the, the training to to be mm, a mentor yes, with, GCMA. Uh, with the GCMA. And uh, an interesting um, sort of piece of information that came out of that was that five of the six mentors that were selected all had overseas experience. Um, so mentoring is, is a mm. so it's a very high level um, skill to, to 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 try and work on and gain, um, and it just seemed that those people who had sort of that overseas experience were more suitable for that sort of uh, that sort of high level training. So it was it was interesting, and um, just as you know, some of the benefits that that you can get from from employing somebody who who has had overseas experience. And I guess that's maybe one of the messages for today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think as a diverse experiences you get and that I think being a mentor when you've got bigger teams, you've got a bigger range of people within them to have to, to mentor and, and bring along. So no, thank you for adding that in. Thank you very much. for No problem. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Gavin. Thank you for joining me and sharing your insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we dive into the world of club management. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoy having them. If you do enjoy and get value from them, I have two small requests. Simply subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review and share it directly with someone whom you think would benefit from listening. If you're interested in being a guest on this show yourself, then you can reach out to me using the details in the show notes 
or email me modernclubmanagement at pm.me. In the show notes, you will also find a link to my bi-weekly newsletter that complements these conversations where you can sign up to receive these directly into your inbox so that you never miss out. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing day. This episode is brought to you by Sweda. Sweda is the social learning platform that delivers high quality blended learning with human connection. Sweda is on a mission to revolutionize the digital learning space through restoring the critical element of human engagement that has gotten lost in online learning. The technology provides everything organizations or individuals need on one single platform to achieve meaningful long-term learning success. Using these skills helped me attain a job offer as the director of golf at Golf Digest, top 100 in the world ranked course after I completed their influence and communication courses. But don't just take my word and the 97% five-star reviews it has had on Trustpilot for it. Try it yourself. All you have to do is email david at suada.com, that's S-U-A-D-A.com, and quote the Modern Club Management Podcast to claim your free enrollment onto the Reciprocity course to start your journey to become a more influential and persuasive communicator.